Amen. Would you join me, Romans chapter 8, that uh, song there, that last little tag will flow right into what we want to look at as an opening thought in Romans 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8, I'm trying to think, what is this, Uh, 1, 2, I think this is the third message that we've had uh, in Romans 8. I'll go ahead and warn you, we're not going to be in a big old hurry to get through Romans 8. Uh, That's not to say we'll take unneeded time, but uh, like this week we'll do six verses, next week we'll back up and catch another one of the ones we covered this week, we'll hit it again and add one more verse to it and uh, we may just be hitting little four and five verse sections as we go through this chapter. Uh, I want to begin with a stat that I shared with you, I think, two weeks ago, okay? Do you remember when I said this? For the first seven chapters plus the first verse of the book of Romans. So seven chapters and one verse for a total of 187 verses. Let that sink in. 187 verses, the Holy Spirit, which we just sang to him, is only mentioned two times in Romans up to verse 2 of chapter 8. Only two times, 187 verses. But once we hit chapter 8, verse 2 to verse 26, don't stop and count. 20 times, 20 times, it's like, hey, how come all of a sudden the flurry? Like, where was the talk of the Holy Spirit? I don't understand what I'm about to say, but God is a trinity. He is Father, Son, Spirit, one God, eternally existing, eternally manifesting Himself in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, co-equal in power and attributes. Why do I still remember that from 1988? That just happened. That was one of our theological quotes John Waters made us memorize in doctrine class or something. Uh, still, Still remember that. I believe that. Here's why. For 187 verses, it's as though Paul has been talking about our sin, our salvation, which focuses on what Jesus did on the cross. So Jesus talked about a lot. God and God's wrath towards sin, God's plan for us, God's allowance, His forbearance, His patience, all of these things, God the Father, the Son. Then he gets in talking about how we still struggle with, with sin, even Christians still struggle with sin. And then he gets to the section where we really focus on the how-tos of sanctification. And now it's time to talk about the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is what I'm going to tell you, my opinion. And I believe I can back it up from this chapter. Listen, the Holy Spirit is the key to living the Christian life. The Holy Spirit, specifically, the practical key to living the Christian life. And so, there's a study of doctrine. And different doctrines have different names and People a lot smarter than I am give them these names. But the study of pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. Pneuma starts with a P. The P is silent. It's that idea of you have pneumonia. So your wind, your breath, it affects your very spirit. So we're kind of going to do the next three weeks a little mini, not a full version, but a little mini study of pneumatology. Because as we hit verses 9, so we're going to back up to verse 9. And over the next three weeks, go down to verse 18, we're going to kind of be seeing seven things the Holy Spirit does for us once you've put your faith in Christ. Seven things the Holy Spirit does once. So if you put your faith in Christ, here's seven things the Holy Spirit does for you. We're going to hit four this week, one next week, Lord willing, this is the plan anyway, it could be interrupted, and then two more in in two weeks from now. So these three messages, you see your title, Life in the Spirit, part one, Lord willing, be part two, part three, looking at seven things the Holy Spirit does. So with that in mind, let's read, we're going to read verse nine, not down to verse 18, we only need to go to verse 14 this morning, okay? So Romans 8, here's our text, starting in verse nine. After he's just said... There's those that live in the flesh and there's those that live in the spirit. And a lot of people, a lot of Christians think that's two types of Christians. No, it's not. Those that live in the flesh are unsaved. They've not put their faith in Christ. And then all Christians are in the category of those who live in the spirit. Though they may not always live fully in the spirit like they should, they live in the realm of the spirit. Their spirit's been brought to life. Those who live in the flesh are still hostile to God. They cannot please God. You know, they are the enemy. They please themselves. Okay, they're in deadness 
They're not in life. So now with that in mind, verse 9. You, so he's talking to Christians. So if that's you, take this personally. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And as I read that last week, I kind of almost anticipate some people's mind and they may think, yeah, well, what if I'm one of those Christians the Spirit doesn't live in? He says, following that, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So all Christians fit this category. Verse 10. But if Christ is in you, and by the way, Christ is in you, if the Spirit of Christ is in you, same thing. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, by the way, verse 9 says he does if you're a Christian. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So you guys are already starting to see. Oh, I know his outline already. Great. It's obvious. It's clear. It's complicated. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So there's an implied we're debtors to the Spirit. So you say, oh, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Uh, i got to go out and kill myself. Nope, not what he's saying. This is not asceticism. This is not, you know, calling for suicide. That's not it at all. He's talking about the flesh, the deeds of the body, sinful, that sinful aspect of us, that lowest part of our nature that we said last week, the flesh gives sin a chance. So verse 13 again. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's confusion on that. Some people read that and say, oh, that's how we go to heaven. No, it's not. That's a result of you going to heaven. That's how you live. We'll talk about that. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And I could emphasize it a little different. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So that's our six verses. I want us to notice four thoughts this morning. Four things that the Holy Spirit does for us. And we're going back to verse 9 for the first one. Real simple. We've kind of already talked about it. But I'm going to add a couple of little nuances to it this week. Number one, what does the Spirit do for the Christian? Spirit indwells us. The Spirit indwells us. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh. You don't live in the realm of the flesh. You live in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Last week I said this verse is a landmark theological passage because it changed everything as far as theology. It set a new benchmark. So I'm going to repeat that this morning. We saw that in the book of Acts. From the time Christ died, let's say 28, 29 A.D., until Paul writes this in 56 A.D., some 30, 35, 36 years there, there was a period of time, especially early on in that, where there were people that had put their faith in Christ and what He did on the cross, and they're on their way to heaven, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit. But we know this, a new benchmark has been set so that by the time this is written in AD 56, all who are in Christ have the Holy Spirit. So here's a Christian. You say, Jeff, exactly what is a Christian? I could say it with one thing, but I'm going to add one other thing that goes with it. It's automatic. A Christian is simply a person who has put their faith, my pastor used the word, used the word trust, trust, I am trusting, it's very active, it's now, it's permanent, it continues. I am, if, if this is you, you have put your trust in what Jesus did on the cross to pay for all your sins and you're not trusting anything else. Just sing the song, in Christ alone. If that's you, you're a Christian, but with that, you will have the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. You will have the evidence of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, as I mentioned these, this term, the Holy Spirit indwells us, I realize, and I'm going to take a moment, because that causes a couple of other terms that need to be brought because they're brought to the surface implied by this, and I need to put them side by side so we understand what is the indwelling of the Spirit. Because often, here's what I find. I hear, and by the way, you guys know this. Some of you work with folks who misapply the terms I'm getting ready to use or you've been in places where you've heard these terms misapplied and all I want to do, I don't want you to get my terminology. I want you to get the Scripture's terminology and 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 I get it. Jeff comes across as kind of a Bible thumper. He's real strict on his theology and all that. If I could soften up on the terms, I would and I'm fine with using some new ways to communicate to, to people in our day. But you can't take Bible terminology and just apply it to something else that the Bible does not talk about. So we want to be, be strict where the Bible is strict. He said, Jeff, what are you talking about? Here's your first one. You ready? So here's some other terms that go with this first point. It's the baptism of the Spirit. I say baptism of the Spirit. What comes to your mind? If you want to write this down, it's in your notes. The baptism of the Spirit, biblically speaking, is the event at the moment of salvation. I want to repeat. The baptism of the Spirit is the event at the moment of salvation where a person was previously outside of the body of Christ. So I'm going to kind of, I thought about illustrating this, but I'm not going to. Picture this is you before you were saved, so this is you over here. And then over here is the body of Christ, where Christ is the head, and all saved people. And by the way, this is the big C church, not little C, Graceview Church, because there's many local church congregations all around the world. Okay? There's, there's local, you know, faith families, and ours is called Graceview Church. Though when we put it on a letterhead, we, we're going to capitalize that C. But in the whole scheme of things, this is a little C church, because... Frankly, in here right now, we have some that are in the big C church and we have some that are not, and we don't know the difference. But spiritually, there is the church, the church, okay? These are all the believers from when Christ died, who put their faith in Christ until time is no more, right? Until the Lord raptures us out in the second coming. So these people that are saved in that time period, this is not the Old Testament saints, this is the church. Here's the baptism of the Spirit after Pentecost particularly. It's where, the, where you're outside of, outside of the body of Christ, outside of the, all believers around the world. They're in every, all seven continents, all colors of skin. Rich, poor, you know, slave, free, and we're getting ready to read that. You're outside the body of Christ, but the Holy Spirit baptizes, immerses, places you into the body of believers. That's the baptism of the Spirit. You say, Jeff, where in the world did you get that from? Look at the screen if you would. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 13. Watch the wording here. For in one spirit, we, this is believers, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks. The book of Ephesians teaches us there's no Jew and Greek inside the church. We're one people. Slaves or free, and verse continues, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You say, Jeff, why are you emphasizing this so much? Because here's what I found. Some people through the years miss the whole point of the baptism of the Spirit. So if I could say it plainer, I'm going to say it this way. Ready? The purpose of baptism of the Spirit is to unite into one body all true believers, not to separate an elite group of, you know, like super saints who have the elite gifts. Or super saints who no longer struggle with sin like the rest of us. And that's how some people teach baptism of the Spirit. Right? They're like, oh, baptism of the Spirit. Yeah, after you get saved, somewhere down the road, maybe you'll get baptized in the Spirit. And this will happen and this will happen. And again, some, you have these gifts. And some say, then you don't struggle with sin anymore. And hope that happens to you. It happened to me. That's what they may say. Here's the only problem. The Bible doesn't say that. In one Spirit were we all baptized into and this is in the context of all the different spiritual gifts. Paul says, we've all been baptized in one spirit. And then he decides who gets which spiritual gifts. That's baptism of the spirit. The second term is the one that we're looking at here in Romans. It's Romans 8 verse 9. And that's the indwelling of the spirit. You say, what's the difference in the indwelling of the spirit? This one's simple, so we won't hit it long. The indwelling of the spirit also happens immediately at the moment of salvation. 
And it is simply where, here I am, 1979, nine-year-old boy, going to Bible camp. Monday night, I don't have the Holy Spirit. Tuesday night, I don't have the Holy Spirit. All day Wednesday, I don't have the Holy Spirit. Sometime Wednesday night, either in the pew or somewhere down in that altar or maybe somewhere in between. But at some point that night, I put my faith and trust in Christ alone. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit came and entered my physical body and permanently lives in my physical body. And that is the indwelling of the Spirit. All believers have it. That's verse 9. We also see this in 1 Corinthians. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 19. Paul asked the Corinthians, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know this? The Holy Spirit which is, it, which is within you, whom you have from God, you are not, not your own. What he's saying is, don't you know that the temple, Holy Spirit's not abiding anymore at the Jewish temple at this time? Christians, so right now I'm looking at many, several Holy of Holies. What Paul is, by the way, listen, don't ever take this lightly. I know right now it can get a little bit academic because Jeff's up here talking about theology and he's not really getting practical. And you may hear this and just let it come in. Yeah, I already kind of knew this. God lives in you. And so when you're afraid and you feel alone, God lives in you. And so when you decide you want to commit some acts of sin, God lives within you. When you do that, you're desecrating the Holy of Holies because that's where the very presence of God is abiding. Your body becomes the New Testament Holy of Holies. Be aware of that. And then there's this third thought that sometimes there's some misunderstanding about. And that's the filling of the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit. So, Jeff, what in the world is the filling of the Spirit? Well, how is it different from baptism and indwelling? Hopefully, by the way, you've, you've caught the difference, and I, I would invite you to say, I'm struggling to see the difference between these. Take these little notes home, look over them in a quiet time, spend five minutes going over it, thinking about it, and you'll see the difference in the way it's worded, I think, on your handout. You should. You say, okay, Jeff, what is the filling of the Spirit? The filling is where the already indwelled person becomes fully controlled by the Holy Spirit so that he powers the Christian life, particularly for service. Like a sail. Last week I talked about sailboats. Picture the wind filling the sails of a sailboat and the wind is powering the boat. That's what happens in the filling of the Spirit. Watch this. Here I am. Getting ready to be baptized in the Spirit. I'm unsaved, but the moment I get saved, the Holy Spirit places me with all the other Christians in the church. From now all the way back, those that say 500 A.D., 200 A.D., 1600 A.D., they're unplaced in the church with them. That's the baptism of the Spirit. The indwelling is when, here I am, I don't have the Holy Spirit. It's just me living inside, me, my body, my soul, my dead spirit. Here comes the Holy Spirit, and he makes me alive, and now he lives in there, and there's two of us. Living in this one body, that's what's happening with you. But the filling is where I already have the Holy Spirit and I yield to his control and he starts empowering me. By the way, sin still is in there, but the Holy Spirit dominates while someone is filled with the Spirit. Look at Acts chapter 4. A couple of us, again, this will be on the screen. And when they had prayed, I can't give all the background, but uh, there's a church meeting. It has to do with Peter and John had gotten out of prison. Um, some miraculous things happened. They got real bold in front of the Sanhedrin. Uh, this was the Jewish council. Threatened to kill them and said, we're going to beat you if you preach in Jesus' name anymore. But they did let them go. And they go and they meet with all the church. And they have a prayer meeting. And watch what verse 31 says. When they had prayed, and by the way, I'm going to give you a little tip. Here's what I find. Two things. Two things about the filling of the Spirit. It seems to almost always be connected to prayer. When prayer is taking place, here the people were already indwelled by the Spirit, but the Bible says when they had prayed, the place in which they were to get, gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Here's what I find. Being filled with the Spirit, they're already indwelled. Peter's in this group. John's in this group. They were filled with the, they were indwelled with the Spirit back in chapter 2. By the way, watch this. You can look it up. In verse 8 of chapter 4, Peter is filled with the Spirit again. So he's filled with the Spirit in chapter 2. He's filled with the Spirit again separately in chapter 4, verse 8. And now he's in this group in chapter 4, verse 31, who later on is filled with the Spirit again. You're saying, Jeff, this sounds like you can be filled with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. Absolutely. 
The other two things are one-time acts, permanent, but being filled with the Spirit is something that can and should be repeated in a person's life. In fact, if I can have that last verse, Ephesians 5, verse number 18. Watch this. Do not get drunk with wine, Paul says, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. So kind of concluding this first thought, watch this. You're never commanded in Scripture to be baptized in the Spirit. You're not commanded to be indwelled with the Spirit. You're commanded, put your faith in Jesus. See that? Put your faith in Jesus. When you put your faith in Christ alone, you will be indwelled. You will be baptized into the body of Christ, the church. But then after that, you're commanded to be being filled with the Spirit. Romans 8. Second thought that the Holy Spirit does for us. Something on my shoulder. The Spirit gives us life. Okay? Spirit gives us life. Would you look again at verse number 10 and 11? But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This will be our shortest point today, I hope, I think. Just two quick thoughts. Christians still die. And Christians will live forever physically through eternity. Christians still die. But Christians will live physically forever in eternity. I might be wrong, but it's almost as though... Paul, who would have taught what he's teaching in Romans many, many times in synagogues and in church settings and house groups, it's almost as though he anticipates people's response. He's just written back, and you'd have to look. Back in verse number 6, he's just said how that living life, this, this spiritual experience, living life in the, in the Spirit, leads to life and peace. And I can almost see Paul in, in one of his meetings, and now he's writing it, picturing, I know it's going to happen. Somebody's going to say, hey, Paul, I don't mean any disrespect, but you just said the spiritual existence leads to life and peace. Uh, my mom, dad, grandparent, whoever it is the best Christian I know and we buried them a week or two ago so if this is leading to life then why is my loved one dead and why are we dying Paul's answer to this objection seems to come here in verse 10 and 11 you know what he's saying we're just following our leader we're following our leader Christians our bodies still die But just like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, died physically, we will die physically. The body is the part of us that is not yet fully saved. One day it will be. Your spirit is saved and your soul is saved, but your body is going to die because of sin. But the time is coming where the Lord will bring it back to life. Christ died physically. Christ rose again physically. You will die physically. Your body, even though, even though the Holy Spirit, God himself, lives inside of us, your body still gets sick. It is still susceptible to death. I hope that's not a revelation to anybody here. Listen, I'm hoping for the rapture as much as anybody. I really do believe it's going to be in my life. I really do. There's just some crazy things going on. You don't think so? Talk to Jerry Prizer. Okay, He will tell you. He, he's, he's, he's on this stuff. But it is real. This stuff's happening. And I believe it's going to happen. But listen... If the Lord chooses to wait 100 or 500 years, you're going to die. You're going to die. You need to be ready for that. Look at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I want to connect two words. Watch this. Regeneration. So what happened at regeneration? That sounds like one of those terms... That's like salvation, right? Salvation has several words that are used to describe salvation. But this one, regeneration, means, again, I'm going to use me, 1979, nine-year-old boy. I have a body running around Ben Lippin Bible camp. I have a soul that's awake and aware. Man, I've got all these drives and passions and desires. I'm just a normal little American kid. I have a spirit, but it is dead. What happens? The moment I get saved, the Holy Spirit 
causes my dead spirit to come to life. That's called regeneration. Watch. The same Holy Spirit who gave my spirit life will also in time to come, when it's the point of time, give my physical body life. I brought your spirit to life. I will bring that dead mortal body back to life and I will reunite it. I'll reassemble it. I think it's the book of Matthew, but at the resurrection of Christ, if you study it, there was a smaller, smaller scale resurrection that took place in Jerusalem. If that's an indication, then you need to watch out. I'll just go ahead and tell you. If you're here one day and you see a lot of graves split open, there's a good chance those were the gra- good chance. Those were the graves of Christians. And if you see some urns up on shelves, all of a sudden just shatter, then that was a Christian. What's happening? Their body is being reassembled. It is being glorified and reunited with their soul and their spirit that's already with the Lord, and it's being brought back together. That is a real event. I get it. I get it. This sound, if you are not a Christian and you just happen to come by Grace View this morning, or you listen to this on the website, you're, you're thinking, this dude is nuts, and anybody said they ought to walk out. These people are crazy. This is crazy. I get it. They said the same thing when Jesus went around telling everybody, I'm going to Jerusalem. And they're going to scourge me and they're going to crucify me. And after I've been done to death for three days, I'm going to come back to life in the same exact body that they put to death. He sounded real silly and real foolish until it happened, just like he said. Here's all I'm saying. The same God who promised Jesus would come back from the dead promises me and you, if you're a Christian, your body will be brought back to life because the Spirit gives us life. That's what he does. Number three. Number three comes out of verse 12 and 13. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Look at verse 12. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. So then, brothers, we are debtors. We're debtors. We have an obligation not to the flesh. To live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. There's a debate. Is that talking about this life or the next life? What's that talking about? And I'd say, yes. It's talking about both. If you live according to the flesh, we already shown in the earlier verses, that's the unsaved person. If you, lived according to, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. You'll be dying a slow death in this life, an unspiritual. You have no connection with God. Connection with God's life. Separation from God is death. He says you will die. You live that kind of life. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of... Look at that phrasing. Don't let this come in lightly into your hearing this morning. We're going to spend a few moments on this one. If by the Spirit, notice it's by the Spirit, it's not just you, but you are involved. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You'll live in this life and it'll show that indication you will live in the next life if you do that. So number three, the Spirit sanctifies us. What is sanctification? I feel like I need to define this each week. Uh, I'm going to sanctify one of these chairs. Okay, see all y'all's chairs? See this section here? I think there's like 50 chairs in this section. I am sanctifying this one. That one is sanctified. That just means it's separate. It's just separate. Sanctification is where a Christian is set apart. You say set apart what? Set apart from, set apart for. Set apart from, set apart to. Watch this. A Christian is set apart from sin. They're set apart from the world. By the world, I mean the unsaved people. Not like we're better than them. Ooh, they're bad and we're great and we're good and we're all proud. No, it's a process that God does in our life where he is separating us from sin. But he's also separating us for himself and to himself. So we're from the old life to this. If I could say it this way. The moment you became a Christian, Christians are different And becoming more different. Christian, you should be different and becoming more different. I want to borrow from John MacArthur for a moment. I will do this a couple of times today. Remember last week when I said I was kind of struggling with application points? Do y'all remember that? And I was like, it's just all teaching. There's like no, no action steps. We finally, as we get into chapter 8, it goes all the way down to verses 12 and 13 where we finally realize, oh, here's an action step. And MacArthur points this out. Listen carefully. Quote, 
Paul's first instruction, if you're a Christian, you should perk up here. He says, Paul's first instruction concerning what his readers must do in their struggle with sin destroys several false views of how believers are made holy. Now, we can give you this quote if it wasn't worthwhile. Say, okay, how? Okay, we're going to be sanctified. We're going to be set apart from sin. We're going to be set apart to the Lord and for the Lord. How does that process happen? Here's how it doesn't happen. Listen, this is not how it happens. He said, it is not in a crisis moment that we're immediately made perfect. That's what some people think happens. Oh, there's a big crisis. You pass the test, and then you live in victory. That's not what happens. Or here's a big one. We just let God take over while we remain idle. You know, oh, we're, we're, we're going to be sanctified and the Lord's going to make us more. But we don't have to do anything. We're just along for the ride. Now, I'm going to sound like I'm being a hypocrite and talking in a circle, but I'm not. If you're a Christian, you are going to be sanctified. But you have a part in it. You have a part in it. Hope I can make that clear. Here's a third false view of how we're going to be made holy. Here's one. Some turning point decision in our life is going to propel us to a higher level of holiness. It's kind of like the first one. The other one was a crisis moment or we just let God do it. We don't do anything. But this third one is there's going to be a turning point decision. I'm reading between the lines, but I think what he's hitting at here is Jeff's going to preach that perfect sermon one day and it's going to take and then I'll be holy. Or... Deanna's going to give me that perfect book and it's just the one and I'm going to read it and it's going to fix me permanently. Wrong. Or as I've already alluded to early in the message, one day I'm going to have the baptism of the Spirit and I won't struggle with sin anymore. That's wrong. You know how you're made holy? Daily, daily, daily. He continues. He writes, rather the apostle says, this is important, I want you to get it, we'll write it in a moment. Listen first. The apostle says the Spirit provides us. So Christian, if you're engaged saying, I want to do something, I need to know what, I want to become holy, I want to be more like the Lord, I want to be what he wants me to be. How does this happen? He's, He's right on it. He says the apostle says the Spirit provides us with the energy and power to, he's providing it, but it's for us to have the energy and the power to continually and gradually be killing our sins. A process never completed in this life. Continually, gradually, we're killing our sins. A process never completed. And then he says, the means. What is, how does the Spirit do this? The means the Spirit uses to accomplish this process is our faithful obedience to the simple commands of Scripture. Listen, I know that doesn't sound fancy and you wanted something a little more wow factor. How does the Spirit do it? He exposes you to the truth of Scripture. As you obey the simple commands of Scripture, you become more and more sanctified. It is that simple. That's how He works. You say, like, what commands? You say, Jeff, we just read chapter 8. There's no commands. Go back to chapter 6. If you've got your Bible open, look at chapter 6, verse number 11. Here's some. The New Testament, by the way, is full of these types of things. We get exposed to them. We start putting them into our life. That's how we become godly and holy and sanctified. He does it. He gives us the power. Look at verse 11. Paul says, so you also must, here's a step, consider yourselves dead to sin. You say, Jeff, you taught us we're, we're dead to sin. We died in Christ. We don't have to sin. It's not our master. But when sin comes tempting, you have to, it won't do you any good to know it. You must at that moment consider can I tell y'all, I've, I've been doing this last few days, not perfectly. And just the other day, I'm thinking of a specific scenario where I was struggling. I was struggling, and I had to get out of a situation as fast as I could because I was like, I am just, I'm losing this. I'm getting ready to blow it. And I had to tell myself, I, I, I talked out loud. Like, you, you do not have to do this. I didn't say it quite that loud, but almost. I was the only one in the house. I'm like, you don't have to do this. Let's, and get out of that situation. Okay? All right. So verse number 11, again. He says, so you also, you also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not, verse 12 is an action step. Now, it's not on your screen, but verse number 14 says, sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Verse 12 says, let not sin therefore reign. Don't let it rule and reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't let it win. Do not 
What's verse 13? Do not present your members, make them available. The members of your body, your eyes, ears, mouth, hands, feet, your mind. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, as weapons. Literally what it means is stop presenting your members as instruments. Here, use me. You need something said that's wrong? Use my mouth, right? Oh, you need an errand run that's sinful? Here's my feet. Use me. Stop doing that. Verse number 13. Here's how we become holy. Here's how we become sanctified. We hear the commands of Scripture, you put it into the life. He says, but present yourselves to God, like the whole self, one good time, as those who've been bought from death, brought from death to life, and your members, here's that daily thing, your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Do this. Put this into the life. Look at chapter 8, verse 12 again. Chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Ladies and gentlemen, listen, you have an obligation. You have an obligation, not to the flesh. You have a debt. Don't pay a debt that you don't owe. Stop paying a debt. You say, what is it? The old flesh nature screams for attention. It wants you to still act like you did before you were saved. Hey, do this. Pick me, right? No, stop. I don't owe you anything. I owe my spirit. I'm indebted to my spirit. And then he starts talking about verse number 13. I want you to see it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Can we just have... Cause look at, see verse 13, or chapter, Romans 6 up there on the screen. You see that? Commands, commands, commands. Can we have the first Peter passage? Look at this. Peter does the same thing. What's he describing? War. He's describing a Christian waging war. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners. Christians, hear this as yourself. Act like Peter's up here talking to you. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. It's fighting you. Fight it back. This is war. Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. And glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's what he's saying. Don't do some things and do some things. Don't do some things, do some things. I put that together and I learned this. If you want to write it. Peter's admonition. We could say the same thing about Romans 6. Peter's admonition in 1 Peter chapter 2 proves we have a part in sanctification. Christian, you have a part. You are to be killing sin in your life. Christian, you need to be killing sin. I'm going to ask you, have you been killing sin in your life? When we wage a war as a country, we study the enemy and we're aware of our weapons and we try to have a strategy. Christian, are you killing sin in your life? The theologian from the 1600s, everybody quotes him when they preach this passage as well we should. John Owen said this, Listen, be killing sin or your sin will be killing you. That's Romans 6.13. I'll say it again. Be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. You want to keep fighting it. It's killing you, by the way. Oh, it's killing you. So put it to death. And this is not nice language. This is radical. I mean, this is, this is death. We're talking about putting something to death. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment. Somebody here today is thinking, okay, Jeff, time out. Been here for weeks and weeks and weeks. Time out, Jeff. Isn't this just the law 101? Aren't aren't we just getting back under the law? Got the prohibitions, got the commands. Isn't this just law and you told us we're not under law and now we got these do's and don'ts and we're trying to make ourselves holy? Isn't this just repackaged, rebranded? That's the Old Testament's terminology. It's the same stuff in the New Testament, just a little bit new phraseology. Isn't it law 101 all over? No. Say, why not? The motive and the method is different. What's being described in Romans 6, 7, and 8 comes from a motive of love. Watch, not performance trying to earn my way to heaven. The law says, you do this and you'll die. Oh no, I can't do that. But you can't stop doing it. 
Your flesh loves doing that. And if you've done it one time, you're on your way to hell. And you're like, I failed. But you feel like if I perform, surely God will see it and recognize it. And he'll let me go to heaven. That's the law. This is not the law. The motive is love. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes in. He makes me love God. So now I want to please the Lord. Not because I'm afraid if I mess up, he's going to send me to hell. That's settled. I'm not motivated by fear. All of a sudden, I'm motivated by love. But watch. The method is different. A sentence I've typed out. Here's the difference. The Spirit's internal power is real. And radically different than the law's external pressure. Watch. The law, external, it's outside of your body. It's putting pressure. You better do this or this is going to happen. It's external. It's written on stone. Doesn't help me. But the Spirit has internal power. He changes our want to. He gives us a whole new nature. He makes it possible. So the next question you have is this. All right, Jeff, we need some nuts and bolts. How does the Spirit work with me to kill my sin? You need to be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. How does the Spirit... I thought of this yesterday, and I don't know, this probably has some flaws, but actually I think it's a decent analogy. You ready? You have to use your imagination. Here we go. You ready? What Paul is describing in Romans 6, 7, and 8 is like a landscape. A piece of property. A yard. Y'all ready? A yard. A piece of property. Your life is the property. So picture... Your spiritual life as a landscape. So picture that. What does yours look like? What is your spiritual life like? You may be sitting here saying, mine's like a lot of rocks and weeds. Well, you're to be killing sin. You know what I think God wants to make of our lives? He wants your life to look like Augusta National Golf Course. Like, oh, mercy. He wants your life to look like Biltmore Gardens or Disney World's property. By the way, every life might look different, but your life is the landscape. Now, on a smaller scale, I've not been to all of your houses. Don't come looking for this at mine. You'll not find it. Some of you have nice yards. Some of you have really nice lawns and little shrubbery areas and flowers and beds and everything stacked neatly. And you know who you are. And those of us who are like me know who we are. And we appreciate when we come here like, man, this looks great. Now here's the thing. We have no clue what you do to make that happen. And those of you who have that, either you hire it out or some of you like, oh, no, no. I do that myself. You know the work that goes into it. And the rest of us are like, yeah, what's, what's going on? Listen, here's what they do. You guys that have these lawns, you spot a weed and you recognize it. That's a weed. And you are on it. You're picking it. You're cutting it. Here's what you do. You actually put stuff on your lawn that's designed to kill that herbicide. Kill those weeds. But you get crazy. Here's what you do. You water the stuff you want to grow. And you put killer on the stuff you don't want to grow. And you fertilize the stuff you want to grow. And you overseed what you want to grow. Because you want your landscape to look real nice. Well, Christian... Your life is like a landscape. The people I just described, they're not going to have bushes like this high and then four and five foot weeds growing out the back of it. Oh, yeah, we've let it go a little. It will drive them crazy. They go after that and that. Oh, there's a runner and they're on it. That's what your Christian life is to be like. How does the Holy Spirit do this? Number one, just as these people recognize a weed... How does the Holy Spirit, literally, Jeff, how does the Holy Spirit help me to be killing my sin? Number one, he identifies what in the world sin is. He spots it. He tells it to you. Through the teaching, preaching of the Word of God. Through conviction. He might use a counselor or somebody, a Christian friend, who uses the Word of God to expose something. And being around them, you realize, wow, I've got some sin in my life. Number two, I'm going to hit these fast. He helps you hate your sin. The Holy Spirit helps you hate your sin. I want to look at verse number 13 again. Watch this. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Christian, listen, listen, listen. 
We're not talking about a game. We're talking about killing. Killing sin. To kill sin, you have to hate your sin. When you hate, I'm asking you right now, Christian, do you hate your sin or do you call it by dainty little names? Do you think of it in soft tones? Do you look at your sin honestly? And somebody maybe here this morning, here's how you think, yeah, I tell some little white lies every now and then. Nice little pet sin. You don't hate it. I hope the Holy Spirit will help you hate lying. Another may say, yeah, sometimes I share too many of my concerns. You know what that's code for, right? Gossip. And gossip's sister, slander. He said, gossip, slander, what's the difference? Gossip's when you're sharing stuff that may or may not be true, but even if it's true, the person you're talking to has no business knowing it. You don't have to tell everything you know, right? It's just gossip. And oh, by the way, slander is when you're finished talking to them, the other person you were talking about, now they're smaller in their eyes because you've slandered that person. They esteemed them here, but after talking with you and you poured your poison into them, now they see them as way down there like you see them. See, that worked. Hate that. Hate it. Hate it. Maybe you hear this after this morning you're saying this. Yeah, okay, at the end of the day, at the end of the week, I like to get, just, I like to get a little buzz. What you really mean is you like to get drunk. That's what you mean. But you call it by nice little dainty names and you look at it in your mind as a soft thing. Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine. It leads to debauchery. Don't do that, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, go through life just coddling sin. You're coddling sin. Hate it. Here's one. It's just, it's just a little flirting. It's just some innocent flirting. It's a girl on the, on the route, or it's a lady at the office, or it's someone out in the shop, or, you know, so, it's, it's just someone in the neighborhood. Okay, no, it's not. If you're married, it's you being unfaithful to your vows. It's you setting yourself up for mental adultery. Don't call it that. Hate it. Is this you? Is this anybody here? You kind of honestly, I hope no one comes to mind when I say that. I hope no one does. But you have disdain for someone. Uh Uh-oh, somebody just thought of someone. Uh Uh-oh, okay. You disdain them. Can I tell you something? Don't hate them. You know what you ought to hate? Hate the root of bitterness in you. Next time, next time you think of them and you think that, you know what you ought to do? Bartlett, the bitterness in you is what should be hated. Stop hating them and start, start hating this. Start hating your jealousy. Uh-oh, that's somebody here this morning. They're now doing what you used to do and they're getting credit for it and you used to get credit for it. People are looking to them and they used to look to you and you're jealous about it. You ought to hate the root of jealousy in you. You ought to hate the envy in you. Hate it. Unforgiveness. I'm struggling forgiving them. Hate the unforgiveness. It's the only chance you're going to have to keep be killing sin. How does he help us? He helps us to starve it mentally. I don't have time to develop that. Think about good things. The Holy Spirit, Philippians 4, 8. Fourth thing, what does the Holy Spirit do, do for us? He helps us feed sin's enemy. You say, feed sin's enemy. What is sin's enemy? Your new nature is sin's enemy. And the Holy Spirit feeds that. So how do you feed sin's enemy, my new nature? The Word of God, prayer, general Bible, just Bible reading, Bible study, just making your spirit strong, studying specific passages that apply to that particular sin, Bible memorization, specific prayer, asking the Lord. This, all this makes the spirit strong. And then the other thing the Holy Spirit does is He helps us cut it off practically. Cuts it off practically. If your eye offends you, what did Jesus say do? Pluck it out. What he means is, if your eye keeps causing you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, your hand keeps causing, leading you into sin, what does Jesus say to do? Cut it off. Here, Paul is talking about, be putting your sin to death. Jesus says, pluck it out, cut it off. We're not playing games. We're not playing games. It's like, man, I just kind of went in there and wanted to hear some good theology, and Jeff's all in my kitchen rattling the pots and pans this morning. He's making me feel bad. We have some action steps this week, guys. It's real simple. 
When the Holy Spirit says that is sin, he helps us to hate it. He starts saying, don't feed it mentally. Think about these things. And then all of a sudden, feed your spirit. And now he's saying, sometimes, by the way, it gets real practical, real radical. You've got to take an action step. To, if you go out of here and pluck your eye out because you have a pornography problem, please do not sue me and say, that guy said... No, Jesus is not being literal. And if you go cut your hand off or, you know, going out and just... Abusing your body, that is not what Jesus is saying. Here's what he's saying. Take away the ability to see the offending sin. Take away the ability to perform and be exposed to the desire. Cut the trigger off. Now, I've got to emphasize this. I'm afraid last week I might not have emphasized something. I'm going to be specific for a moment, but if you think I'm saying these things are wrong, you're totally missing it. I have every one of the things I'm about to tell you. But we're talking about practical steps. Pluck it out. Cut it off. Get radical. Make some tough decisions. What would Jesus say? Just to be blunt, tell you. If you can't handle a smartphone, get rid of it. Well, I've got the plan, and to have that plan, and to have that phone, I've got to have the data plan. Get rid of the data plan. If I get rid of the data plan, they're not going to let me have the smartphone. I'm going to get one of those dumb little flip phones. Sorry for those of you that have this. They're going to get the dumb. All you can do is call and text on that. That might be what some of you need. If you can't handle having a laptop, chuck it. Give it to somebody that can handle it. If you don't know anybody, put it in the dumpster. You're saying, that thing cost me 750 bucks. It'll be the best $750 you've ever lost in your life. Take a sledgehammer, smash it, and don't go buy another one. If you can't handle cable television, don't have it. If you can't handle a credit card, let your spouse have it. Don't you have it? Does that make sense? Pluck it. Cut it off. Hate it. Identify it. If you can't handle Facebook, don't have an account. Because at the end of the day, you know the end result of you having these things is lust and debt and coveting and bragging. Get rid of it. Verse number 13, one last time. Is he describing losing your salvation? Is he describing working your way to heaven? No, he's not. What he's talking about here is the way we live our life will reveal if we're a Christian or not. That's all he's saying. Verse 13, if you live according to the flesh... Early in the chapter, he's made it clear, saved people are not in the flesh. So if you live according to the flesh, you've set your mind on the things of the flesh, and it's revealed in your life, guess what? You will die, you're dying in this life. Separate from God, you will die eternally in the next life. That's a fact. But if by the Spirit, and it's a process, and it's gradual, and it's continual, and it's little by little, and none of us do it perfectly, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, well, that's the evidence that you will live. You will live. And lastly... If I can finish today's message and introduce, lay the groundwork for next week, we'll pick up verse 14, 15 next week. Watch verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Christian, listen. The Spirit leads us. I'll say it this way. True Christians are led by the Spirit. All true Christians are led by the Spirit. Not a direct quote, but an idea. MacArthur mentions how. Right, Jeff, how does the Holy Spirit? Verse number 14, listen, this is the Bible. All, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's the ones. How does the Holy Spirit lead? Catch this, this is important. So man, this MacArthur fellow sounds like more of a Bible thumper than our pastor. Well, he probably is. How does the Holy Spirit, watch. Most often, God leads objectively. Y'all know the difference between subjective, objective? Objective means you can prove it. Most often, God leads objectively. How? Through illumination of the, of the Scripture, making it possible for us to understand what the Bible says and giving us the ability to obey it. That's real simple, I know. How does the Holy Spirit lead? Is it tingling? Is it a voice? Is it a cloud? What is it? He leads by showing you the Word of God, helping you make sense of what it means, and helping you put it into your life. That's how the Holy Spirit leads. You say, is that the only way He leads? No. But the main way is exposing you to the Word of God, giving you a Bible-educated, God-oriented conscience. 
So you've been in the scriptures. All of a sudden, this comes up in life. I know that's wrong. Ooh, I know I'm supposed to be doing that. So a Bible-saturated, God-oriented, obedient conscience. That's how the Lord leads. You say, well, Jeff, I sometimes feel like the Holy Spirit just prompts me in things that are not even in the scriptures. Awkward pause. You very well may be right. I experienced that myself. But I'm going to give my opinion here. And it is one of your notes, so this is my opinion. God does lead by inward prompting. And by that I mean things that are not spelled out in Scripture that the way it could have been. Specific things for today. He does. But I believe only a person who's been heeding the obvious expression of God's will in the Bible, only that person's qualified to say they really have been receiving these inward promptings. In other words, you say, I don't really spend any time in the Bible, but God told me to do this, and God told me to do that, and God told me. I would say, are you really sure that's God? Be careful. Because here's what I have found. I really have found this. People have said God prompted them to do some crazy things that I know the Bible doesn't prompt people to do. You say, like what? Uh, Date. Unsaved people. I just feel like God wants me to know. There's a Bible for that. Date cold-hearted Christians if they are Christians. But they say they're Christian. That's not God prompting you. Here's a big one. God told me to, I feel like God wanted me to marry an unsaved spouse. Well, you need to study 2 Corinthians. Here's one. God told me because I don't love them anymore, I need to divorce them so I can marry them. Here's one. God told me to take this job even though it's killing my spiritual life and it's cutting off my ministry and cutting off my family. God told me to do that. Listen, you wanted to do that and the American culture prompts people to do that, but God doesn't prompt people to do those things. Only the people who've been saturating their mind here and been living obedient to that, then if they say, I just feel like God's calling me to do that, calling me to do that, well, praise the Lord. Those things should match up with Scripture. Well, I'm real preachy today, aren't I? Man, last week I was nice. Well, no, I, I wasn't all nice, but man, anyway. I'm going to come down the home stretch. Here we go. A Christian, if you're a Christian, you should be able to identify clear leading of the Holy Spirit. Do you have that? not playing games do you have it eternity's too long for you to just say I'll think about it later you may not have later this is the sign you're a Christian is your is your life marked by regular guidance of the Holy Spirit you say what would it look like three things we could do more but kind of just these as categories number one is real simple do you have conviction of sin the Holy Spirit leads by conviction of sin Verse number four, verse number 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Guys, I'm going to tell you, I feel it. If you get by with blatant known sin, you know the Scripture calls it sin, you get by with it and there is no stinging and there is never any chastening. I'm using the word chastening, it's not punishment. God chastens His children because He loves them, because they're going away from Him in sin. He wants to bring them back to Himself. If you get by with never chastening, never stinging in sin, and you just go through, raise your hand, you're a Christian, or somebody says, are you a Christian? Oh yeah, I've made peace, I'm ready. You're on real shaky ground, that's all I'm going to tell you. He leads by conviction of sin. Do you feel it? I do. Number two, do you ever experience the the Holy Spirit's teaching of the Scriptures? Simple, here's what I mean. Do you have regular times the Scriptures are made to come alive and they make sense to you? So Jeff, there's some passages that really puzzle me. Yeah, me too. Romans has been just whipping me. That chapter 4 and 5 especially. Like, man, I'm ready to pull my hair out. What in the world? And thankfully, usually by the end of the week, the Holy Spirit says, all right, here's what this means. Thank you. I gotta preach on Sunday, and if I don't know what in the world it means, do you guys get on a regular basis, Holy Spirit? Oh, or do you endure sermons like this in total boredom? If that's you, that's not good. Verse fourteen is real clear. If you're like, yeah, I come here to check it off or to make somebody happy, 
But if you can honestly say, and I get it, I preach long and, and, we, and, and attention span wanes, I understand that. But I hope each week you can honestly say, oh yeah, I, every week God shows me things. That's a good sign. The scriptures come alive. That's a good sign. When you get into sin, the Holy Spirit convicts you. That's a really good sign. If you don't have that, you're not a Christian. And then the third one is, to balance what I said a moment ago, do you experience regular leadings of the Holy Spirit? And you say, what do you mean? Promptings to take Bible actions. Do you have promptings to take Bible actions? I gave a list, I think, way back in September, a year ago, right at a year ago. And I'm going to hit that list again as I close. Do you ever hear this? Check yourself. Check yourself. Let me give you a dozen things fast. You ever hear this? Turn that off. Talk with me. Do you ever hear that? Turn that off. Read about me. Turn that off or put that aside. Think about me. Do you ever hear that? Here's one. Hey, that's good. That's enough about the game spin this conversation to me you ever hear that here's one give that person exactly what I tell you to give them what but Lord you know give them what I tell you to give or here's a good opportunity October 8th you give to that project what I tell you to give (laughs) not what Jeff tells you to give what God tells you to give. Do you hear that? I, I, I really believe. I, I want to get literal, Lord. And I've got to tell Deanna. Deanna needs to start praying. I kind of already have a figure in my head. It would it'd be great if they're like, oh, match. Okay, now how are we going? Anyway, uh, it's like, okay, good. You ever heard this one? Don't let your kids go there. Don't let them do that. Or, here's a big one. Stop. This was me this week. Stop being discouraged and believe that I'm in control. You're going to stop? Oh, that, that going to rock your world? Stop it. I got it. Yeah, but I need to see that. You, know, you, you just need to know right now I've got it. Here's one. Stop believing lies and know that I love you. It's God talking. Here's a big one. Stop being cold and tell them they offended you. Tell them. We don't do that. We don't do that. Here's a big one. Forgive them and stop holding a grudge. Or love that person even if they mistreated you. If that's happening, that's not you. That's God. Here's one. Don't go any further in this, con- in this discussion. You've already said all you need to say. Shut it down. Do y'all have that or am I just imagining things? This guy's got one. He's got a lot of problems too. He hears voices. Are you being led by the Spirit? If not, today's the day you need to make sure for your soul's sake. Would you bow your head for a moment? I'm going to get practical. Today's had several practical aspects to it, I think. So I'm going to ask you a real practical question. I just gave you four things the Holy Spirit does in the life of a saved person. When I just gave you that list of leadings... I was not implying that you always obey when the Holy Spirit tells you to do or not do. None of us live up to that. But what I'm asking is every person this morning, all of us, so block any distraction out. This is the most important part of the message. Do you have the signs of the Holy Spirit in your life? I asked this last week. We revisited it this morning. Do you have the evidence of the Holy Spirit? His work in your life is the surest evidence of genuine salvation. So to be plain, do you sense there's someone else living inside of you? Are you indwelled by the Spirit? Do you sense, can't explain it, you don't get the credit, he gets the credit. Do you sense from the time you've been saved until now, a force inside of you has been changing you? Do you sense that changing Do you sense Him leading your life, talking to you, convicting you of sin, making the Scriptures come alive? Do you sense Him? Again, not perfectly your obedience to it. I'm asking, do you sense that? And without bragging, if you say, Jeff, in all honesty, 
before me and the Lord. Not perfectly and not to the level that I want it, but what you've described in the last hour, that describes my life. If that's you as a Christian, would you raise your hand? You say, Jeff, I've experienced these things. Would you raise your hand? If you can confidently say, I know that I've experienced these things. I, I, I sense the indwelling. Hey, I believe something as big as God doesn't come in someone's life and they, they not know it. I sense his leading. I sense his changing. I sense his conviction. He, he, why there's so much I don't know, but he does. He just speaks right out of the word of God. Sometimes I don't get it all, but man, it's powerful when he does. And he prompts me to do and to not do. Thank you. If you could not raise your hand this morning, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite you in a moment as we sing. I'm going to be at the front. And if you need to talk with me, you have the courage today to step out and say, hey, I don't have those things. I need to get it right. Eternity's too long. I don't want to miss heaven. And I sure don't want to go to hell. And I have no evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life. I need to talk with someone today. I'm going to invite you in a moment to step out. Not done it that way, but today, care about your soul to step out. And then Christian, right before we sing, I'm going to get real practical. Please don't blow this off. Christian, is there a specific sin? God is leading. The Holy Spirit leads His people. Is there a specific sin in your life? The Holy Spirit is leading you. You need to wage war. It begins with God help me, cause me to hate it. And Lord help me to starve it mentally. Identify it. Lord help me to be building up my spirit, my new spirit, my new nature which is the enemy of my sin. And then Lord help me put practical, practical steps to cut off its influence in my life. Even if it's something I'm going to miss because I'm so used to it. But this thing has just dominated my life and I'm really sick of it. And today's the day, by God's grace, I'm going to kill some sin in my life this week. Christian, I'm asking you. Is there anyone here this morning? Heads bowed, eyes closed. No one on the worship team looking around? Please don't look at the audience. Is there a Christian in the house say, God's put his hand on a sin in my life and I need to start killing it? Anybody? Would you raise your hand? Up and down. Several. Wow. A number. Awesome. God does what I can never do. I hope, I hope you will follow through on that. Whatever he leads you to do, he'll lead you. Say, Holy Spirit, help me. Help me to hate it. Help me to cut it off. Cutting it off alone, by the way, will not work. You've got to feed the Spirit. Cutting it off, that practical step, you'll just find someone who has, has what you need. You get practical, but only after the heart work is done. Lord, if someone needs to be saved today, and today's their day, would you give them courage to step out? Don't let anyone in their way mentally stop them. Lord, I can't save them, but I can tell them about you. And so, Lord, I present them to you. And, Lord, we as Christians help us to be hating our sin and to be killing it on our way to eternal life. Would you guys please stand this morning? I'll be down front if you need.